Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to the Capital Weekly Podcast. This is Capital Weekly Editor-in-Chief Rich Eisen, uh, joined as always by my partner in crime, Tim Foster. How are you doing today, Tim? I'm well, Rich. Well, and we're really thrilled today. We're, we're in our palatial studio with a in-house guest, so we're really excited about that. Uh, we are joined by Susanna Delano of Close the Gap, California, who is here to talk with us a little bit about the recruitment process for uh, getting more, uh, and in your case, specifically progressive women to run for office. And, and uh, before anyone loses their marbles, we're going to talk a little bit about how there are groups that appeal to all sides of the political uh, spectrum here. But uh, um, Susanna was gracious enough to share some insights with us recently for a series of stories that I did on on um, the broader efforts to uh, get more women elected to the California legislature specifically. And so we thought it'd be a great idea to have her come in and talk a little bit more in depth. So Susanna, welcome. Thank you for being Thank here. Thank you. It's great to be here. We absolutely. might be the only ones left in Sacramento after the budget deal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, Friday afternoon, budget deal, out the door, absolutely. They're all out on, on Highway 80 right now, by the way. I think that's where they're all at. But uh, crowd, crowding uh, the airport, trying to get out back to Southern California. Well, let's, let's start with essentially what Close the Gap does, because... Um, I learned a lot in talking uh, to all the folks who were so gracious enough to share time with me to write this series. And I wasn't terribly familiar with your group and groups like yours. So it was a real learning experience for me. So for those who might be like me and, you know, didn't really know that much about it, uh, give us the nickel tour of what Close the Gap does, what your goals are and how you work. Sure. Um, well, I'm so glad we got to meet each other through the process <laughs> of that series. Uh, so Close the Gap is part of a growing ecosystem of support for women candidates at all levels. Um, we are a very specific campaign, and we're actually a campaign with a start date and an end date and a concrete goal, which is gender parity in the state house here in California by 2028. So we launched in 2013 uh, to recruit. We really felt that that was the missing link in the ecosystem of support was just getting that volume of women candidates. It's clear that when women run, they win just as often as men, if not more often. Um, but there just haven't been enough women competing. Um, and of course, there are challenges on the back end in terms of, you know, disparities in fundraising. But, you know, you can't hope to level out in any sort of short period of time if we don't dramatically increase the number of women who are thinking about running. So that's what we're designed to do. So we work a full election cycle ahead. For example, we just have pretty much wrapped up 2024 recruiting for seats that will be open in the legislature in 24, and we're turning to 26. Um, and we go through basically a five-step process with each district that we target for a progressive woman uh, to really plant the seed, the idea of running for this coming open seat with the prospective candidates themselves, but also with the community of like-minded groups who share our values, who you know care about proportional representation, um, to really get you know, strategic and thoughtful early about who would be great, but maybe just someone hasn't tapped him on the shoulder and said, hey, you'd be great. So that's a big part of what we do. Um, of course, we do a lot of coaching. Um, each process we conduct is customized one-on-one -on -one for the prospective candidate we're working with, just kind of meeting her where she's at in terms of what are the concerns, what are the, you know, uh, the blockades that she might be wary of heading into it, making introductions that are relevant, um, to round out her sense of confidence and background in the issue areas, um, as well as in, you know, third house sort of inter-Sacramento politics. Um, that's really our role. So we're early 
at the point when we finish, if we've done our job right, they the prospective candidates really have a round sense of what a full campaign would look like. They have a Rolodex of contacts they can reach out to. They have some idea of how to proceed. We've talked to them about consultants and given, given them recommendations that are customized, and they go. And at that point, we're done. We're not a pack, so we never endorse. Um, we don't campaign on behalf of the women that we work with. Our goal really is to just juice that number of qualified women who are prepared, who are out on the field. Now, there are other groups that can pick up the ball from there, like Absolutely. Emerge California and, and Emerges around the country um, that will then provide more detailed training, correct? Yeah, it, we work closely with Emerge. Um, I really see them as our big sister in a lot of in a lot of ways. Um, they primarily focus on training, although they, they do recruit as well. Um, but they're also not a pack. So at the point when the campaign launches, um, our job is done as close the gap and Emerge, and then we really look to you know not only traditional sources of funding, but the women's packs, um, the Democratic Women's Caucus in the case of our women, um, California Women's List. Emily's List, uh, Fund Her is an upstart pack that began in 2016 that has really come on strong. Um, and, you know, for our women, of course, a number of groups in the progressive world. And I certainly want to follow up on some of those things. But before we do that, uh, I know we talked before, you, there's a number of women currently in our legislature or in other uh, prominent offices around uh, California. Can you name a few of the folks who have come to close the gap? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we have... Well, there's a record high of 50 women now serving in the state legislature. Um, back when I started at Close the Gap in January of 2018, there were 27. Um, but that was really the moment things started to change. So 20 of the women um, who are serving now have come through our program, um, a large number of them just in 2022. So Assemblymember and Black Caucus Chair Lori Wilson is one. Um, she's also an Emerge alum. Um, and it, she's an interesting case study to look at how these groups in the ecosystem work together. Um, to really produce um, outstanding uh, results uh, like we've seen with Assemblymember Wilson. Um, Aisha Wahab is another one, state senator from the East Bay, uh, Assemblymember Tina McKinner. Um, yeah, those are, those are some fairly prominent names going <laughs> right now. I, one of the things that I know we, we've we talked about this before, and you also mentioned it now, um, some of the specific aspects of getting women to run. Um, one of the things I heard over and over from a lot of women, um, and and you corrected me on this, which I was appreciative of, is needing to be asked many, many more times than men. Now, I think the figure I had was seven. I know there's that's not everyone agreed with that, though there were others who said that was about right. Mm -hmm. In any case, it's very clear it takes a little more effort to get a woman to run than men still Absolutely. in this day. And there's a variety of reasons for that. Um, but I'll let you say what some of those reasons are. I mean, having kids at home is the obvious one, but there's a lot of other reasons as well, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and it's become kind of a piece of, of folklore that you have to ask a woman seven times to get her to run. Um, there is data absolutely showing that women are recruited less often than men, and I think that's one major reason is women are not asked to run, and that's one reason we really focus on the, the ask at Close the Gap. Um, I think, you know, sometimes there's a perception that, that women, you know, don't think of themselves as leaders and they're these humble, modest, you know, that's not always the case. Women aren't wallflowers. A lot of times the women who do end up running for legislature are very accomplished. Um, some of them are at the peak of their careers, the peak of their earning times. And even though, you know, California's legislative compensation package is the most generous in the country, it's definitely a pay cut for a lot of the women that we talk to. 
Um, so, you know, they may also be at the point where they could either retire and, you know, play with grandkids and, you know, help their kids, uh, navigate their earning years, um, in that way. Um, or they could, you know, launch into another decade or so of service. So, um, those, those issues come up, up a lot. I think increasingly, you know, the, the perceived really toxic culture of politics is brought up. Um, exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. yeah. I mean, definitely in the digital age, social media, um, you know, that's just going to intensify, I think, as we get start getting into generations of candidates who grew up with, um, you know, social media accounts. Um, so, you know, just it, one part of it is just the visibility, the lack of privacy, um, especially when you feel like you're kind of on the front line protecting your loved ones that you may or may not be, you know, directly the caregiver for, but you're attached to. Um, but then also threats and harassment, and that can obviously um, oftentimes impacts women of color, um, AAPI women, specific communities much more so than others. And it's a real concern. You know, I, for the series that we've referenced a few times here, I spoke with Morgan Carroll, who's a former Senate leader in Colorado. Uh, she's now out of out of the building, but she was also the head of the Colorado Democratic Party for several years after that, and then has received a lot of credit for uh, Colorado achieving gender yeah. parity. Uh, just this year. Uh, and one of the things that she noted, uh, very much in line with what you're saying, that's maybe a newer thing, because you referenced social media, is how much more a female candidate's dating history, or as she put it, having a crazy ex, or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever else may be out there that a teenage person might put on social media that you probably wouldn't if you were a little older may come back to haunt a woman much differently than it will a man. And so that is something that you've probably had to incorporate into your process that maybe you weren't doing even four or five years ago, correct? Yeah, Yeah. no, absolutely. We've, we've definitely just in my, you know, six or so years at Close the Gap, we've put a lot more emphasis on kind of that initial digital scrape. We actually have a consultant who volunteers um, in her spare time to do some opposition research um, pro bono, just to kind of see what's out there and, you know, make sure that the prospective candidate has a full accounting of what could, you know, what could happen and, and what would go wrong. Um, and also just teaching about the digital tools that exist um, in order to, to reconcile with stuff like that. But yeah, I think none of the women we work with have any illusions about the fact that there's a double standard for women around, you know, judgment of your personal life, judgment as you as a parent. I mean, one of the tropes we hear all the time is uh, female candidates are often asked, well, who's taking care of your kids? Yeah, no one ever asks. <laughs> nobody <laughs> asks the them males, that. Yeah. So, you know, I think they're aware of that. But, you know, really one of my galvanizing um, realities is, to do this work over and over again is, is the hope that by bringing more women and more, you know, historically excluded voices into politics, that they will actually have an impact in terms of reforming, you know, addressing that toxic culture, um, and putting in place good governance laws that, um, you know, can affect what it's like to serve in a way that allows more human Mm -hmm. beings to be their full selves in office, but also candidates. Well, and and it probably works both ways though. I, I certainly know I heard from several, um, current female office holders that said, you know, 2016 presidential election changed everything for Mm -hmm. them. Um, Not all of them, but several folks mentioned that to me that, you know, that was the inspiration. And of course, a lot of things have happened since then that reinforced those concerns and also uh, maybe amplified them with other, other aspects of, 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 you know, the possibility of running. Mm -hmm. How much has that changed the equation? Yeah, you guys. it's changed it a lot. It's it's not the whole ball game, but you know, I 
we definitely get a lot more self-nominators um, since 2016. I think, you know, the Women's March actually created a number of um, candidates. If you look at the 2020 cycle, um, both now Assemblymember Don Addis and Assemblymember, Assembly candidate Elizabeth Betancourt were founders of the Women's March in their communities, oh. San Luis Obispo and Reading. Um, I think there was definitely a, a pivot point coming out of the Women, Women's March in the 2020 uh, cycle where um, there was sort of a deliberate uh you know, nationwide study of electoral politics and, okay, we've marched, we've protested, we've all gone into all these different um, ways of resisting, but how do we actually start getting on the inside of the political system to affect reform? And, you know, another example, I think, is Assemblymember Bauer Cahan, who was, you know, famously doing legal aid, essentially, at SFO um, in the aftermath of the Muslim ban, and she was really activated um, and speaks compellingly about how that, you know, connected to her lifelong you know, sense of identity and purpose. So mm -hmm. we definitely see a change, um, you know, like I said, more self-nominators. Um, so, you know, you have that cultural moment, which also, you know, we had Me Too in there, which was part of the, the cultural zeitgeist that has really lit a flame. Um, and then you've got sort of this blossoming of the ecosystem of support among women's groups that I've described, you know, this year, or I'm sorry, last year emerged, turned 20. This year, Calif uh, Close the Gap California turns 10, and Fund Her, one of the PACs I mentioned, turns 5. So you've got all these seeds planted over the last couple decades that are really starting to flower in ways that are, are hitting critical mass at just the right time culturally. And I'm assuming this is probably a nationwide thing. There's probably other groups in other states are probably going for the for the national, yeah. uh, you know, for Congress and Senate, et cetera. Are you, do you work with them or is that just something where you, you know what they're doing, but it's not really Yeah. At Close the Gap, we're pretty laser focused on California. We're, we're a, you know, intentionally customized, um, you know, structure for this political ecosystem, but definitely Emerge now has a national presence. Mm -hmm. um, I don't remember the exact number of states they're in. Um, and more and more you see PACs um, close the gap over its time since 2013 has advised, I think, six or seven uh, women's groups in other states who, you know, don't always adopt our exact same structure in the sense that like her term in Georgia is, you know, they recruit, they train and they endorse um, much smaller footprint when you think about, you know, the, the, the number of voters and districts and media market costs um, in Georgia than in California. But um, there's definitely a national movement for sure. And you focus not just on state legislatures, you focus on uh, really pretty much any office that a public office that a woman might be interested in seeking, correct? Close the gap only focuses on state legislature. Um, we're, we're just, uh, we just target a certain number of seats per cycle um, okay. in the state legislature. But what that means functionally is that we're looking at the pipeline. So we are partnering with Emerge, you know, early on, tell us about, you know, the women who are going through your class this year, or if we meet someone who we think has a lot of promise, but might not be quite ready to, to run for state legislature yet in California, we'll, we'll refer her to Emerge and say, go through this training. So there's a lot of interplay back and forth there. And, you know, I think it's something like 65% of the women we work with to ultimately run for legislature come from local office. So they're school board members, they're city council members, um, they have that experience. And, and then, of course, many of them go on to be Congress members right. or serve at the federal level. So... Well, and as I noted early on, you're, you focus very specifically on progressive Democratic women. There are groups out there like California Women, women Lead that, um, you know, recruit uh, conservative women, uh, Republican women. Um, and one of the things I found interesting was talking about, you know, and, and this is not your focus, of course, but trying to get 
Um, you know, because of the Republican Party's condition right now in California, you know, whether or not it was harder to, to recruit from that side of the aisle. And, you know, the answer was really a little pretty nuanced because, um, I think the feeling is, you know, there's still women that are concerned about safety and homelessness and right, the same as everyone else, right? Um, but there might be some also some very big differences in terms of, uh, you know, feelings about the uh, access to abortion, et cetera. So I guess the question therein lies, okay, um, you know, do you find yourself um, having to have those kinds of discussions with women who may be somewhere right in between, not really way over here on the strong progressive side, but also not way over here on the strong, you know, could fit well in Alabama side. Sorry, my friends in Alabama. Um, you know, how, how big is your, is your, yeah. is your radar there? <laughs> yeah. Um, we do a lot of intentional vetting, um, you know, around priority issue areas close to get, everybody's got a different definition of what progressive is. Uh, we define it as uh, pro reproductive freedom pro-public education, and committed to combat poverty. So as as litmus tests go, it's not the strictest in progressive circles, um, but all the more reason for us to dive deep and figure out, you know, what what a woman's own sense of priorities are. Um, so we really spend a lot more time sort of looking between like a moderate Democrat and a progressive Democrat, um, to be honest. Um, I think uh, just the reproductive health issue alone kind of takes us out of conversation with with those who would not find themselves in there. But I will say a lot of times these women, whether they're serving at the local level or they're community activists or they're labor leaders or they're in the private sector, you know, running profitable businesses, they don't come to us thinking of themselves as what Sacramento would see as a progressive or a moderate. And part of our work is to sort of translate, okay, you, you know, you say you're a progressive, you run for school board as a progressive. That means one thing in your community. It means something very different in Sacramento. And here are the quicksand issues and the dividing lines and, you know, just kind of educating about that full spectrum um, that exists. Yeah. And I, I would think that the candidates that would emerge in Reading, you know, uh, are going to be quite a bit quite a bit different Absolutely. in, you know, from here or from, God forbid, Berkeley, you know, um, they're, <laughs> Not uh, always, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you know, does that play into this where you say, Hey, you're a really talented candidate. You're never going to get elected with those views. You're never going to get elected from Tehama County. It's definitely part of the dialogue. I think, um, you know, and that's why our criteria are what they are because we need to find, you know, a central Valley progressive, the same as, you know, already into, you know, Santa Barbara and so on. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think a lot of our conversations at the outset are really about the district itself. Um, that's where we start in our process. Do you understand who lives here? You know, do you know them? Do they know you? Do they already see you as somewhat of a leader? Um, and it's really more about that, you know, thinking about who is your base um, that is going to make you a credible candidate, not so much as how aligned are your values. Um, because what we've seen, if you're able to mobilize a base, if you're able to bring folks together and get some key endorsements, you know, people said Assemblymember Shava was was too progressive for her district, and and she took that with force, um, and is doing a great job. So, um, you know, same with Elizabeth Betancourt, um, who I mentioned, who ran in the she ran twice in a nineteen special and in twenty twenty out of Reading. Um, you know, her expertise is in climate, and you know, she had a lot of really interesting. Um, perspectives and experience as far as extraction-based economies and kind of how economically that region could transition in a way that we really thought was a bipartisan appeal. Um, and she also did, 
did a lot of building of, you know, progressive infrastructure um, in the area. One of the things, one of the parts of our process is search parties where we bring folks together um, from different groups, from different points of view, you know, former electeds, um, insiders, outsiders. And we talk about, okay, the seat's going to be open in a couple of years. Who can we make a short list of who would be great? And a lot of times, one of the outcomes there is that they, the attendees are just so thrilled to have met each other because they thought they were an island in a place oh, like, yeah. you know, 81 up north. You don't realize how many like-minded neighbors you have until you sit down to work on a concrete project like that. So that's a lot of the collateral benefit from the work we do um, that is different in every district. Absolutely. I'm a little curious about the attrition rate. Um, when you go out to recruit and you get women who say, yeah, you know, I'm interested in learning more and then they get started. How do you have an idea of how many you keep that get through your whole program or, or, yeah. you know, how many get overwhelmed right at the beginning and say, okay, no, that's not at all what I want to do. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty rare. I, I find that, you know, if, again, if we do our job right, they tend to know what they're getting into. Um, so they don't, they tend not to pull the trigger and launch unless they're really ready for it. Um, but, you know, to give you a sense of the numbers for each district we target, um, and, you know, for 2024, we have something like 25 target districts. We start with at least 25 women, um, per district and we have those conversations and we offer explorations to about that many. Um, I would say probably half of those take us up, um, on the exploration. And the exploration process can last, you know, a couple months or a couple of years. Um, it really, you know, depends on the timeline uh, that, that we're dealing with and, and what the pace of the, you know, the prospective candidate we're working with is. So at the end of the day, you know, our rule of thumb is we, we recruit at least three women per district in order to have the best chances that at least one will launch. Wow. So that's it. Yeah. That's, that you got it. You're getting it down to a fine science <laughs> of, of how you go about this. Um, along those lines, I know when we first spoke initially, you said that the, the target number of open seats over, and I can't remember if it, if it was the 2026 or 2028 was about 96, but that number is fluid because of a variety of things, people mm-hmm. resigning or, or what have you. Uh, do we have an idea over these next couple of elections where it's at now, how many mm-hmm. open seats we might be expecting as you try to reach that 60 Mark. Yeah, yeah. So we close the gap started in 2018 using this term, the mother load. And by that, we meant the election cycles between 2022 and 2028. And during that time, 96 at least seats were going to go open. Um, and so we really saw this from the start of close the gap as the opportunity of a generation to really, you know, legislature is going to be transformed no matter what. It's really an opportunity to be intentional about, you know, the, the caliber of candidates we're recruiting and also the demographics. So um, 22 was supposed to be kind of the slowest year of the mother load. I think originally there were only eight open seats, but that ballooned into 38 by the end of the great resignation. So wow. that was definitely the biggest cycle. Um, but we see about an average of 20 open seats for the next three elections after that as well. So about 20 open seats for 2024, although by our count, that's hovering around 30 right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another, you know, it's like 17 or 18 for 26 and the same for 28. But you also see in a cycle like 26, a midterm cycle, when a lot of the statewide constitutional offices go open, that has a domino effect right. with the most likely you know, candidates being the existing state legislatures. So you get more open seats. Well, and of course, it begs the question. Uh, we have never had a female governor in the state never. of California. You know, we 
arguably are the most progressive state on most issues. I, I think uh, Oregon and Washington and maybe sometimes Massachusetts would argue with us on Probably that. Hawaii. But, yeah, yeah, Hawaii. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I think California always has been a state that a lot of other states look to for leadership on any number of issues, whether they like it or not, which they often don't. But we've never had a female governor, which is almost bizarre when you think mm-hmm. of the states that have. I mean... We like to crack on Alabama and Louisiana and those states here, but they've had female governors. Sure. Wyoming's had female governor, on and on and on, right? Mm-hmm. Arkansas and et cetera. Um, we have at least a couple of very high-profile um, women who have already announced their candidacy for uh, 2026. Mm-hmm. Um, how important is that? And I know you say you're only focused on women who are going to run for the legislature. But how important is it to the process, maybe, to have really, whether they win or not, but to have really strong campaigns from a number of women? Because I think we think there's a lot of other names that could still get into this. You know, we talk about Tony Atkins and others like that who may get into this. How important is that for the overall recruiting process that you guys are doing to, mm-hmm. to and, and, Maybe to win. Mm-hmm. I'm sure winning would be the best, but just even run a really strong campaign. Yeah, it's incredibly important. I mean, it's creating a new norm and, you know, it really is counterintuitive that in progressive California, we haven't come, you know, to that particular uh, uh, benchmark yet. But, you know, it's the same reason why it's been counterintuitive that we were so far behind all of our Western neighbors in, you know, our, our women's representation in our state legislature. So, it is important, I think, you know, again, that, that you've seen this bubbling up of, um, you know, women uh, in terms of the statewide constitutional offices. Um, we have some incredible women in there. A couple of them emerge alumni in our lieutenant governor and our state controller um, at this point. So definitely, you know, setting that example. There's a lot of research out there that's really interesting about the particular challenges for women running for executive roles, you know, whether it's mayor or governor or, or president, um, you know, the, the ceiling just seems to go higher and higher as far as the expectation. Um, and that, of course, contain, brings with it disparities along ethnic lines and, you know, just in terms of how voters perceive um, women who are who are running at that level. So it is an incredibly important piece of the puzzle. And, you know, I can't weigh in, of course, on any individual candidate, right, but I would course. just say it's about time. Right, right. So how did you end up doing this? Ah. I mean, what, you know, this is a, an interesting job. I'm sure there's an interesting path to get there. Yeah. Um, I didn't mean to go into politics. My my parents were activists and hippies all through the 60s, so I was really raised in a movement mentality, but it was the water I swam in and I didn't expect. But, you know, I actually um, ended up in the labor movement. I was with SEIU for seven and a half years, basically, you know, during my 20s, um, working to draw down that initial aging with dignity funding for home care workers and long-term caregivers throughout the state. Um, So, you know, I was organizing, I was bargaining contracts, but increasingly I was interfacing with County Board of Supervisors and I was coming up to Sacramento in the, you know, the summer of purple shirts and I was, you know, lobbying and and ultimately I actually got to work on um, the injunction um, against then Governor Schwarzenegger's across the board cuts to the in-home supportive services program and work directly with the plaintiff and the legal team. And that was so um, inspiring and fulfilling to me that I think that was really a moment when um, the importance of, of pipeline and, you know, effective community-based representation at every level of government was so apparent to me in terms of actual life and death situations um, of people in communities. So, 
um, I went from there to Planned Parenthood to focus more on policy. Um, and I was at uh, Planned Parenthood in Northern California for about the same amount of time throughout my 30s doing policy work, but also electoral. And, you know, these were two organizations where a lot of our time was spent on defense, you know, just to to keep the, the boot off of our necks. And there wasn't a whole lot of time to be proactive in terms of recruiting candidates, the kind of candidates that we knew, you know, would come in with the sort of understanding and shared values that we we desperately needed them to produce somehow when it became time to put together that voting majority. So when Close the Gap approached me, um, you know, it really seemed to me like an opportunity to go on offense in that way and be thoughtful and, and do the thing that we always knew we should be doing. Um, but, you know, we just need to fight that one particular budget cut. Um and, you know, a chance to join forces with people in advocacy organizations like that who are doing proactive candidate recruitment. So that's how I ended up doing it. Um, it's really fun. I love it. <laughs> and it's it's just an incredible time to be doing the work, too. Well, and the timing is really amazing. I think um, a lot of people would agree that for a long time, I would say the Republican, uh, both at this, uh, most at the national level, had better recruiting tools, better, um, and they had a deeper bench. I don't think anyone would really dispute that. I think any, you know, I think any rational observer looking at it now would say those, those scales have come much closer into equanimity. So yeah, one thing that as we were talking, I thought about was, uh, Mike Madrid, uh, would always bring up the fact that even in deep blue California, the majority of local elected officials were Republican. It was a pretty significant majority. And then in the Trump era, that switched. And that's no longer true. Uh, Or I should say the last time I talked to Mike Madrid about this a year or so ago, it was still not true. So I'm assuming probably still. And I wonder if that's changed your bench. And all of a sudden, it's opening up all these people who are now in seats that were previously held by Republicans and maybe Mm -hmm. are now Democrats who are potentially more progressive. Yeah, I do think it's shifting. I mean, I I think, you know, compared to the percentage of the voters, um, Republican electeds at the local level probably are are a higher percentage than that. But but the the same sort of demographic shift we're seeing at the state level is definitely being echoed at the local. And if anything, it's even stronger. And I do think, you know, groups like Averge who are working at that level um, all around the state have something to do with that. Um, I know, uh, one of Close the Gap's board members, uh, Philippa Penalosa, works down at Grassroots Lab with Rob Karinke, and they track the local data. Um, and, you know, from conversations I've had with her, it really does seem to be reflected that increasingly there are women and women of color and, you know, younger and more LGBTQ and just, you know, a much greater diversity of candidate, um, a winning candidate, you know, serving in office throughout the state. Well, Susanna, this has been um, incredibly illuminating. Uh, like I say, I, I really appreciated all the insights you gave me for the pieces I was doing. But this is this was a good chance to get in again even more in depth than than we were uh, before. So, hey, thank you. Really appreciate you. Yeah, thank you, you guys. As soon as we get off, you know, turn the recorder off. We're gonna you're gonna tell us who's gonna be the first female governor. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll wait. We'll you know not for our listeners, but for just for us. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're, we're not going to get you in any kind of trouble with anybody. We promised oh, that. I appreciate that. That was part of the deal, right? <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we're going to take a brief, brief pause, and then we're going to come back and talk about who had the worst week in California politics. The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. All right, we're back. Uh, Tim, it is time for our favorite part of the episode every week. Who had the worst week in California politics? As always, there's you know a a number of possibilities, but I think um, 
I think this time we both agreed that there is a Supreme, a state Supreme Court case that was decided uh, yesterday, we're recording this on Friday, uh, that came down that could really put a crimp in the style of police agencies around California, right? Well, my read of this, and I'm just basing this on the news coverage, is it's a pretty nuanced decision. Uh, so I'm not sure that it's really going to open Pandora's box for police agencies. However, it's definitely uh, opening them up more than has been the case in the past. Now, there's also uh, federal shield laws, uh, you know, qualified immunity laws that I think are going to come into play here. But it certainly is a is a step in, away from offering police agencies uh, widespread immunity. And right. we've seen that over and over again, this, you know, multiple federal Supreme Court cases over and over again, that has been upheld. This is sort of a step away from that. I'm not sure where it's going to go, but I'm sure that uh, the police unions are not happy about this. And the cities and counties uh, that are running, you know, the police organizations are not, probably not happy about it either. Yeah. And, and so we're clear here, we're talking about a, a case it's Leon v. County of Riverside. The case was the, uh, the ruling was released on Thursday by the state Supreme Court. And essentially, what it does is it gives Californians uh, broader rights to seek damages for quote unquote abusive conduct by police. And, you know, this could, could play itself out in any number of ways. And, 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 and in the reporting, we're we're referencing stories in most of the major media here, including the San Francisco Chronicle and others. But talking about uh, essentially a couple of different cases where, and, and this case in particular, there was a lawsuit by a woman uh, whose husband's body he had been fatally shot, and uh, it doesn't say how, but apparently he was naked uh, near the couple's home and apparently outside. And Riverside County deputies left him there for uh, something like eight hours. And while they were uh, searching around for the shooter, she sued Riverside County. Um, court, the case, of course, eventually ended up in the state Supreme Court. And they, uh, the justices there on a seven to zero ruling, by the way, uh, rejected what had essentially been a dozen lower court rulings since 1982. They didn't all come in this case, but since 1982, there'd been uh, at least 12 lower court rulings that upheld this really broad immunity by uh, for police uh, if they were doing something in the course of their investigation. And, and that goes all the way back to a law from 1963 that uh, definitely uh, provided immunity from prosecution for any judicial or administrative officers who were, uh, you know, carrying out duties, even if it was uh, believed that they had acted maliciously or without probable cause. So right. that's the case we're talking about here. Also, a really interesting thing is, uh, the you know, the damages that were sought are, are have already been turned down. They're, the right. claimants are not going to get them. And because this is a closed case, that's not going to change that. They're still not going to get those damages. But going forward, it may make it may open up the door for other people. So it's a, I find it a really interesting case, and uh, you know, again, not something that's really clear cut. Clear cut, not a win for police organizations. However, right. 
I think it's a very complicated decision and very complicated. Uh, it complicates the future of these types of cases. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where I was going to is, you know, the, the suit actually dates all the way back uh, to the 90s. And the appeals court had overturned the verdict. She was a, the, the woman who sued was originally awarded three hundred twenty five thousand uh, dollars. An appeals court overturned that. They dismissed the suit in 1994. This is how long it's taken to get to the Supreme Court here just in this state. Now, what happens from here? Uh, yes, it's definitely. Um, so it's crazy yeah. that this has now dragged on for, I mean, if they overturned it in 1994, that was 29 years ago. Yeah. You know, when they say the wheels of justice move slowly, I don't think this is quite what they were talking about, but wow, that's, you know, that is really slow. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, there you go. I, you know, I think like I said, we had some others, but I don't think anyone's going to top that one this week. You know, if you're, if you're a police agency in the state of California, at the very least, you know, you've got more, almost assuredly more uh, legal issues coming your way in the future. And that probably, you know, that probably never sits well going into a weekend. No. Well, and, you know, I got to say, the police are looking at current price going, you know what? We have no problems. Comparatively, we have no problems. Last week. Comparatively, you know, no problems for sure. Uh, so anyway, all right, well, we'll uh, next week, we'll look and see who had perhaps an even worse week. Yep. We'll see you next time. Take care. Bye, Rich. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week. The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.